We're looking down the barrel of a long, cold winter. From low wages to soaring rents, battle lines are being drawn between working people and everyone else. Some politicians took advantage of the pandemic to help landlords and big business. Now, ordinary people are being asked to bear the brunt of our economic woes. But there have been moments of brightness over the past few years where the truth has shone through. We have a choice about how we run the economy. As we face the biggest squeeze in living standards since the 50s, who is actually trying to build an economy that works for everyone? From strikes for better pay to campaigns against new fossil fuels, people across the UK are demanding something better. In this mini-series of the New Economics podcast, we'll discover how our economy has been run over the past few years and look at the key battlegrounds for those fighting to change the rules. This summer, on a small road in southeast London, a crowd of people prevented immigration officers from detaining a local man. Protesters sat on the ground in front of the van he was held in for hours, shouting, let him go. From Pollock Shields to Peckham, over the last couple of years, we've seen how people can come together to physically stop immigration raids in their communities and protect their neighbours. We are here for our neighbours. We are standing for each other. You know, we are not allowing brutality in our streets. But with the government giving the police more powers to crack down on protests, will actions like these be able to continue? What is happening to civil liberties in the UK? And who is fighting back? Whenever the the heat comes onto the Prime Minister and whenever the heat comes onto this government, they're turning us away from looking at them and asking them to do better for the people in our communities and saying, no, look over there, here's the enemy. It's that refugee who's fled Afghanistan. It's that lawyer who's trying to uphold the law and fight for people's rights. Those are the real enemies. And, and we need to be able to see through that. And we need to be able to demand for our government to, to be held to account Welcome to this special mini-series of the New Economics Podcast. This week, we're asking, do we need to fight for our human rights? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So, I'm really pleased to be joined by Zara Hassan, former barrister and advocacy director at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Hi, Zara. Hi, Aisha. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being with us. And we also have the fantastic Charlie Welton, Policy and Campaigns Officer at Liberty. Hi, Charlie. Hi, uh, thank you for having me on. No worries. Let's dive in. Uh, So I want to start by talking about some of the events I mentioned at the top. So, Zara, can you tell us a bit more about these anti-raids protests? How do they work and why are we seeing so many of them just now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what's really important to say is what we've seen over the last couple of years is a mass display of resistance against some of the worst of this government's immigration policy. And essentially what this raids movement is, is it's just local people, neighbours, friends, families, people in their community coming together to stop other friends, other family members, other neighbours from being removed from those communities by the forces of the state. And 
what we've seen is basically localized uh, anti-raids networks um, popping up all over the country who essentially organize together to locate where raids are happening, monitor when they happen, and to basically create a community response when the police or the home office try to enforce immigration controls. So they, you know, do call outs, whether within their networks and then broadening those call outs to get local people to show up and to Exist. And we've seen how successful those have been, whether in Scotland um, or in London. We saw at the raids resistance in Peckham around 200 people show up. So it's a real display of community resistance. This is people who are trying to stop migrant workers from being ripped away from our communities and for our communities to be places of safety and welcome. And really, this should be celebrated and it shows what's possible through people power. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Sarah. So, Charlie, what has the police response to these raids been? It seems like they have been really taken aback at the strength of the actions. But, yeah, what are you seeing? Well, absolutely. I I mean, I I think what we've been seeing, whether it's in Edinburgh or Peckham or wherever else we've been seeing these, is that the police, faced with this overwhelming response from local communities, have had to, to leave without following through on these deportations. I think, though, that there is a broader sense from the police that they don't like it when when people resist these sorts of things. So what we may end up seeing is, as I'm sure we're going to get onto later, further legislative responses to what we've been seeing recently. Definitely. So to go a little bit deeper there, and I mentioned in the intro the new powers that the former Home Secretary Preeti Patel introduced, which allow the police to crack down on protests. So, Charlie, let's come back to you. Can you go a bit further on that then? What is all that about and where are we at with those new powers today? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, these new powers that we're talking about have, have come in through the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act, the Policing Act, the PCSC Act, came through Parliament over the last couple of years, was passed. Uh, earlier this year. And it had in it a whole slate of new restrictions on protest. So among them were powers to impose noise-based restrictions, to criminalize one-person protests, to impose restrictions on public assemblies, and restricting where you could protest, creating, for example, a buffer zone around parliament. So this all came out of a grand sort of desire to restrict the right to protest as much as possible. And, and, you know, the police and the Home Secretary at the time spoke very much about recent actions from groups such as uh, Extinction Rebellion. But really, I think it's all part of a, of a much broader desire to restrict the ways in which people are able to stand up against the state and to hold the government to account. So it's not just in, uh, in protests that we've been saying this, but in uh, in legal challenge, the things such as the Judicial Review Act and plans to restrict or indeed repeal the Human Rights Act for uh, trade union legislation and in many other ways as well. Some of the aspects in the in the bill as it went through Parliament were actually voted down in the House of Lords, which was a fantastic win. But even so, we've seen these come back. And in fact, there is now a new bill in front of Parliament called the Public Order Bill which seeks to bring these further restrictions back in. 
Yeah, I had I'd heard about that. So with the House of Lords kind of rejecting it, what was the I guess response to that, both in politics and in the movement? Do you think that that speaks to a kind of broader space that's opening up around awareness of this issue? Or yeah, what was that about? Yeah, I do. So the the interesting thing here was this was a quite extraordinary thing. I, th- I think we saw first of all a massive overreach from the government. They took what was already a a, a really quite horrible bill. And they decided that they wanted to make it even worse, even more restrictive in terms of the right to protest. So on top of all of the stuff that was in there already, from restrictions on noise to uh, cracking down on annoying protests and things like that, they wanted to add to that new offences of uh, locking on or being equipped to lock on you know, interference with transport works or national infrastructure, stop and search specifically related to, to protest and new civil orders, which would work to essentially ban people from protesting. Really quite extreme stuff. And added after the bill had even passed the House of Commons. So this was just going to be placed into the bill in the upper chamber, in the unelected chamber. And uh, they thought they could just push it all through like that. So, of course, the policing bill had a huge amount of resistance to it, you know, on the streets and in civil society. And really across the country. And that huge amount of resistance managed to win a huge series of votes. I think there were 13 votes that were won on a single night on the bill, which knocked them all out. However, as I say, the other thing I think it shows is how dedicated the government are to really, really cracking down as much as possible. Because, you know, they they came down to the next session of parliament, and they've just brought forward a bill that would put all of those things straight back in. And what next? I mean, I know obviously the we've got Zoella Braverman and campaigners have said that this is a major step backwards and a kind of threat to human rights more generally. So what does Zoella Braverman mean for this bill? But also what else do we know about her that might give us cause for concern? Yeah, so Zoella Braverman is, is very much a concerning appointment in the Home Office. I don't think anybody was really mourning the loss of Priti Patel. But um, I think if, if anything, Braverman has the potential to be worse. A Conservative MP was quoted in the Times as saying she's just as right-wing as pretty, but she's cleverer. Um, I'm not going to comment on relative intelligence, but I think what she is is more directly ideological. She um, was the Attorney General before this, and she spent her time as Attorney General reasonably often laying out her political and legal philosophy in some of her uh, public appearances and speeches at conferences and so on. And Really what comes through every time that she speaks is that she feels that human rights have gone too far, that we have ended up in a place where it is too expansive, where too many things are protected. So she has this in, in sort of several different areas and Zara will be able to speak very well on the immigration uh, side of things. But also she's spoken specifically about protest and the use of human rights laws to protect protesters in court. People may remember the uh, the Colston Four case, where um, there was a protest in in Bristol, and members of the of the community toppled the statue of Edward Colston, who was a slave trader. They were charged and they were acquitted, and she was very very angry about this and referred the case to the Court of Appeal. We're still awaiting the judgment on that, but um, I think that certainly what we may see is not only a specific attempt to crack down more on protest and more on using human rights laws for people to assert their right to protest, 
but also a more general attack on our human rights. She, of course, in between um, her time as Attorney General and her time as Home Secretary, she ran for the Conservative Party leadership. And in that leadership campaign, she advocated potentially withdrawing from the European Convention on Human Rights, which is a very, very worrying thing. Coming to you, Zara, so as Charlie alluded to, there's also a conversation to have around migration in this in this discussion. The government has also introduced a range of new measures that are designed to deter people from entering the country um, in the Nationality and Borders Act, which include, of course, a policy of pushing back tiny boats trying to cross the channel and deportations to Rwanda. So could you tell us a little bit more about this and about the pushback against it, especially in the movement space? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's so important that we're having this discussion um, about the Policing Act and the Borders Act together, because really what they together represent is a wholesale attack on all of our rights, but particularly an attack which will most sharply impact racialized communities, whether that's migrants, whether that's black and brown protesters, or whether that's the GRT community through the measures in the Policing Act. So I think, you know, really, we have to see the Nationality and Borders Act in this context. But really what that act focuses on is really kind of anti-refugee laws. Really what it's trying to do is brandish cruelty towards refugees um, and create an even more brutal environment for people who are seeking safety. And essentially what has happened is we've had the Nationality and Borders Act, which essentially criminalises people on arrival to the UK. And the complete uh, kind of hostility of this is really demonstrated through the fact that this government's rhetoric has been completely about, you know, oh, well, we want to have the Rwanda scheme in order to save lives, um, you know, save people from people smugglers. We want to, you know, crack down on borders in order to kind of help refugees. And it's just obviously um, a complete lie. We know that the solution Solution to ensuring that people can reach safety, they can rebuild their lives away from danger, is to have safe routes to the UK. But you know, the government has instead just closed every single um, potential safe route for people. They closed the Syrian resettlement scheme last year. They slashed the Afghan resettlement scheme by 3,000 places. They closed the dub scheme for unaccompanied minors. And that has meant that now we see one in four people crossing the channel is Afghan. We know that people um, crossing the channel are from countries where they're fleeing danger, fleeing persecution in many forms. And so what this government's doing is essentially kind of creating a rhetoric around safety and morality, but obviously doing the complete opposite. And really, it's kind of an attempt to look as though they're kind of having hardline policies on migration as a distraction from their own political failings, um, whether that's kind of the cost of living crisis or their failings during the pandemic. They're creating these policies in an attempt to look as though they're, they're doing something about an issue that a minority of people actually care about. You know, we know immigration is no longer on the kind of priority list of issues that people care about. They're more worried about fueling their homes and being able to make ends meet, but they are doing it for political point scoring and headline grabbing cruelty, basically. We've actually seen the new Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, say that her top priority is to ban all 
uh, small boat channel crossings. She hasn't said how she wants to do that, but that apparently is her top priority. So really, we're seeing this ramping up of hostility towards migrants and refugees in a way that you know, in my view, is some of the most draconian uh, immigration policy we've seen in decades. But I think the kind of last thing to say is that, you know, really that hasn't extinguished the energy and resistance and the growing solidarity movement. And ultimately, you know, that movement is far more powerful and stronger than this government's hostile uh, and divisive approach. So I think we have to just keep building on that uh, in response to what this government's doing. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, really, of whether that divisive strategy is working. I I know you kind of touched on this for a second, but what has the public opinion on immigrants and people seeking asylum been over the course of these events? I know we've seen occasional moments of sympathy here and there for people trying to come to the UK, say around Russia's invasion of Ukraine or when the Taliban took back control of Afghanistan. So what's your read on public sentiment? And do you think these you know, little kind of flashes in the pan moments of sympathy, do they do they ever stick around? Yeah, I mean, I think really, you know, this is really a question of, um, of narrative. I mean, I think, you know, most people would believe that if they were fleeing their homes or they needed safety, that they would want to be treated with care and compassion. I think that's just very basic human feeling. And so I think, you know, in that context, I think that people need to have a better understanding of who refugees are and why they're coming to the UK um, and what the situation is for them when they arrive. And also that's why it's so important to highlight the lack of safe routes, because I think it's really important to state that there are no alternatives for people. They're being forced by this government to make those dangerous crossings in the first place. And I think it is important that, you know, as I said, The issue of uh, immigration is not within the top priorities of people. They are more worried about the cost of living and making ends meet. But this government's almost leveraging the economic situation in order to kind of scapegoat migrants, basically, and say, well, we don't have enough to go around. These are the people to blame, etc. But obviously, we know that that's not the case. We know that you know, we're one of the wealthiest countries in the world. We know that there is more than enough to go around. We have hundreds of billionaires. We have empty properties owned as second homes by wealthy people. We have people in this government who are millionaires. And really, it's a question of wealth redistribution and being able to provide for everyone um, who wants to live in this society whether they're migrants or not, and for everyone to be able to work if that's what they want to do, to build a family, to build community. And that's the opposite of what this government wants to give everyone. And I think there is a deepening understanding of the fact that it's not migrants and refugees who are kind of this sort of scarcity mindset or sort of uh, preventing people from having resources. It's this government decision making. We've seen the public demonstrate upset with what this government did during the pandemic. And I think there is understanding around that. And I think that's why our movement is growing. But there's still more work to be done to bring more people um, alongside in that fight. Yeah, I mean, completely agree with that. To bring the two pieces together, Charlie, When there are legal challenges to measures such as the ones that we've been talking about, the Home Office has berated lefty lawyers who are standing in the way of the law. What kind of climate do you think that creates? And would you say that there is kind of energy and momentum and the resource that we need around legal support for these challenges? (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, there's been the very deliberate creation of an atmosphere around the idea of people 
bringing challenges against the government uh, over the last few years. You know, you say lefty lawyers, we, we hear that a lot. Uh, activist lawyers, the very famous one was that front page of, of the Daily Mail that had some judges and underneath it, enemies of the people. The point of this is to dissuade people, is to put people off, is to scare people, quite frankly, because sometimes it does escalate into physical threat. A man was, was arrested after coming into the offices of a, of a law firm that, that worked on immigration cases with a knife, intending to use it. And this was very much a result of a lot of the rhetoric that had been used. At the same time as this heavy rhetoric that is intended, as, as I say, to dissuade people from bringing cases, you get the legislative changes, which are intended to make it just practically harder. So, you know, you have things like the Judicial Review Act, which intended to make remedies weaker, which would dissuade people from bringing cases. Or you had the um, proposed changes to the Human Rights Act in the Bill of Rights Bill, also known as the Rights Removal Bill, which would have put up more and more barriers in the way. As I said at the start, all of this is, is very much just part of a whole whether it is trying to make it harder to bring cases, whether it is trying to make it harder to protest, whether it is trying to make it harder to strike, to bring industrial action, or even introducing voter ID into our elections or taking control over the Electoral Commission. It's trying to just basically cut off all of the various routes to accountability, all of the ways in which we are able to stand up to our government and just make it harder overall. But the thing about that is that when you look at this, when you look at the amount of time and effort and parliamentary time that they spend talking about these things and actively working to make them harder, it just shows you that these are effective tools. They're doing it for a reason. You know, there's that old kind of uh, rather cynical joke about, you know, if voting changed anything, they'd make it illegal. You know, you can sub in protest or legal challenge or anything or anything else. And while they can't quite make it illegal, they're making it as hard as they possibly can because it is effective. And of course, the reason why they can't make these things illegal, whether it is protest or, or striking or, or whatever else, is because we are still protected by the European Convention on Human Rights, because we do have the right to strike and protest and so on through our, our right to freedom of association and assembly and expression. And it is probably why it is most concerning that we do hear these things out of Swella Braverman about potential withdrawal. Whether or not that is something that is down the line, I, I think that there is certainly scope in the proposed changes to the Human Rights Act, which has been sort of shelved for now, the immediate plans, but they will come back to make it harder to recognize those rights, make it harder to stand up and bring cases against the government. And really what we are seeing here is as much as they are trying to make us scared or just simply dissuade us because it will be too difficult, too onerous, too expensive, what we've really been seeing is a great increase in determination and in solidarity across sectors because it's very clear what they are attempting to do. It's very clear why they're attempting to do it. So it becomes even more clearer why we need to resist it. Thanks, Charlie. That was really comprehensive. I think on the... Um conversation about the kind of public response to this versus what's happening in the, the way that politics is shifting 
In this series of podcasts generally, we've been discussing kind of whether we're seeing a shift away from a small state kind of more neoliberal government to a more kind of interventionist one. And I guess a question I have for both of you really is, do you think the various bills that we've discussed so far are an example of this shift towards a kind of more interventionist government? Or has this always been the case when it comes to policing and immigration? I think in some ways, you know, it's an extension of what is already a a violent regime. You know, we've seen through the kind of movements that have built up, including, for example, the Copwatch movement or the anti-raids movement, a real appetite to kind of address actually fundamentally the violence of policing and the violence of borders in their very form and how these are kind of forms of racial oppression, how they are forms of kind of subjugation of working class communities. And so I think we do have to see it in that context, obviously. But I do think it's fair to say that these particular uh, pieces of legislation are essentially a step towards fascism. You know, the ways in which they will have material impacts on people's lives and people's families and their communities is devastating. And we're already seeing it play out. You know, we're already seeing the impact, for example, of something like the Rwanda scheme. There was a report um, by Medical Justice just a few weeks ago that detailed um, how how the psychological impact of the Rwanda scheme had really affected people, you know, who were in detention and had been served with removal notices, the incidents of self-harm and suicidal ideation. And so, you know, these policies are already having a devastating effect on lives and Similarly with, you know, the Policing Act, we can see obviously how kind of police brutality and police violence is really pervasive in this country. You know, we've seen the shooting of Chris Cubber by a police officer. So I think we have to remember that this is really kind of a step and a shift into a really hostile, racist and uh, divisive direction. But it builds upon years and years of, you know, very authoritarian law and policy and the kind of inherent violence in the roots of policing and borders in the first place. So, yeah, I think it is a shift, but it's not kind of completely new. Yeah, I would, um, I, I would agree with that. And I would say that rather than a sort of return to the state, I think that what we're kind of seeing here is is more that things have been stripped down to, to such an extent that people quite often are desperate. And if they're not desperate, they're at least very angry. And you have situations in which there will be a greater degree of protest where then the state will feel that they need more protest laws and more police presence and so on to respond to that. And indeed, there will be more cases in which public authorities are not giving people what they need and what they're entitled to. And so you will see more cases being brought and the government wanting to cut down on that number of of cases, so more legislation through that. So I think rather than a return to the state, I think this is perhaps a symptom of how far the state has been cut down and the effect that it's had on people. I would absolutely agree with that. Just to pinpoint something specific that you, I think, mentioned earlier, Charlie, in terms of the European Court of Human Rights, obviously some campaigners have, have, have been using using the European Court of Human Rights to halt some of the government's immigration policies, but then the government has tried to kind of supersede the ECHR with a Bill of Rights. I think this is what you're alluding to earlier, Charlie, if I'm not wrong, with, uh, with some of the conversation about Suella Braverman. But could you tell us more about this and whether that's actually likely to happen? Yeah, so there are a couple of things really in here. I, I think that 
What happened with the Rwanda flight was that the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg issued what's known as an interim measure, which is not a full ruling. It's not saying this is illegal and you can't do it. It's saying let's let's just pause. Let's stop this now because if we don't stop it right now, then there could be irreversible harm while we're figuring out whether this is all legal and everything. So that that's all that happened with the Rwanda flight. And the uh, the case is now in front of British courts trying to figure that out. You know, this is something that is used intermittently when, when there is a real need. This is something that has, in very recent time, has really benefited British people as well. For example, interim measures were used against Russia recently uh, in the case of a couple of British people who were fighting on behalf of Ukraine and were captured and sentenced to death in an autonomous republic, so-called, that was uh, controlled by Russia. So interim measures were, were issued to stop that execution. But the response the response to the Rwanda flight had been that they wanted to make it so that we wouldn't accept these interim measures anymore, that we, that we wouldn't abide by them. And this was a provision in the Bill of Rights Bill, the Rights Removal Bill. That would be breaching international law, just to be clear on that. It would also create a situation in which other countries would probably say, well, if they're not going to obey these interim measures, then why should we as well? And, you know, with the example I've just given of, of Russia, you can see how worrying that would be. But then there's another strand, which is whether we then want to just leave the convention altogether. So leave Council of Europe, leave the jurisdiction of the European Court and come out of the European Convention on Human Rights, which is the treaty which gives us all of these rights that protect us. There is a sort of argument from certain members of the government, and Suella Bradman is, is absolutely one of these, and she's spoken about this at length, that the convention that was written and signed in the 1950s, in part by British uh, lawyers as well, championed by, by Churchill, all this sort of thing, that was all well and good. But things have developed in such a way since then that we should just scrap it entirely and we should get out. This is a sort of originalist point of view. This is something that we often talk about in the American context when we're talking about the Supreme Court and in particular the, the recent ruling over Roe versus Wade on abortion, which is that our protections should be just what is written down in the text, whether it's the European Convention or it's the US Constitution, no matter how long ago that was, no matter you know whether they even could have known about the issues that we deal with now. And while that has become quite a strong current in the United States, it's only really kind of beginning to become quite a thing over here. And I think you can see from the American example how worrying that is. So leaving the European Convention would, would be terrible for a whole host of, of reasons, which I think should be reasonably obvious. But one that I think that I would just quickly highlight that would be very, very concerning is that the Good Friday Agreement, which you know brought peace to Northern Ireland, insists upon uh, incorporation of the European Convention in domestic law. Leaving the Convention would breach the Good Friday Agreement and the scope for really, really concerning things relating to peace in Northern Ireland um, should be very obvious out of that. Absolutely. Thanks, Charlie. So moving away from the 
conversation there about bills and laws. Since Pollock Shields residents came together to stop their neighbour from being detained, which we have alluded to so far in this episode, we've seen other high-profile incidents in Edinburgh and South London. So anti-raids networks are obviously expanding and increasing in number, and it feels like against the backdrop of all the very depressing stuff we've been talking about on the podcast so far, that's something to feel hopeful about. So, Zara, why do you think so many anti-raids networks and protests are popping up at the moment? Is it a kind of natural response to all the things that we've been talking about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, in general, we've seen a growing resistance to some of the sharpest edges of this government and people kind of recognising that actually in light of the government trying to strip away power from, you know, legal challenge, obviously the Tory government having a massive majority in parliament, obviously a lot of people feeling that the leader of the Labour Party leaves much to be desired. People are recognising that actually our power is in community, it's in direct action. And that's the way that we can bring about the most effective systemic change, you know, using the power that we have, which is the power of kind of direct resistance and movement building. So, you know, what we have seen is obviously the anti-raids movement um, really developing in the last couple of years. But beyond that, we've also seen mass movements against deportation flights. And we've spoken about the Rwanda flight. um, And I think it's really important to acknowledge that it was the fact that activists, you know, laid on the road, were able to stop coaches from leaving detention centres to take people to the airport to board them onto that plane that bought essential time for lawyers to continue to make legal challenges. And in the end, it was that combination of legal action and direct action that grounded that flight. And so it's really amazing to see the kind of power and solidarity that is being built and how many people are willing to really kind of put their bodies on the line, including at a time when, you know, the restrictions on protests have obviously increased. Um, It really shows that people aren't afraid to challenge this government. And I think this government knows that. Um, Like Charlie said, I think this government knows that our power is effective. And that's why it's trying to come down extremely hard on us. But, you know, we've seen loads of groups organise lots of different ways of resisting. You know, JCWI held a carnival of resistance um, over the summer where we had people from the community come together to mark 10 years of the hostile environment and to mark kind of further resistance to hostile environment policies, which of course remain in existence. At that Carnival of Resistance, we had anti-raids workshop. We're trying to skill up people in our community to be able to resist too. And, you know, there are lots of other ways of organising against the kind of state violence we're seeing at the moment. We've had um, groups like Green and Black Cross and Black Protest Legal Support provide police monitoring at protests to particularly ensure that protesters know their rights and to monitor incidents of police brutality, to monitor arrests so that people are supported um, when they face those things. We've also seen, of course, cop watch movements, groups across the country being formed to monitor the police within their own communities and to challenge police harassment on our streets. We've seen, you know, groups like IWGB, which is a smaller grassroots trade union, work with migrant workers 
workers to be able to resist the hostility that they face as a result of increased border controls. And so I think it's really important to say that all of these sort of networks, um, this kind of constellation of movement building is something that's working really kind of beautifully together and that's only growing in numbers and strength. Um, And it's something I'd really encourage people to kind of get involved in because it's really sort of the form of resistance that's the most effective at the moment and the thing that we need the most to show solidarity with the communities um, most impacted by these laws and policies. Fantastic. I mean, you've, you've really kind of uh, kneecapped me there, Zara, because my last question was uh, essentially that. How can a combination of different tactics be used across the movement to make life in the UK better for migrants? And I think you've just given us a brilliant answer to that. But feel free to mull it over in case you have anything to add while I go to Charlie for a second, because I just wanted to ask a very specific question. So during the period of mourning after the Queen's death, Republican protesters found themselves treated really harshly by the police. As we've seen, protesters were arrested after holding up anti-monarchy signs and a top police officer later admitted that the officer who arrested them didn't actually understand the law. So Charlie, I had a conversation, actually an interesting conversation with someone yesterday who's quite senior in like party politics. And one of the things that he was saying is that he thinks that British people just don't like protests. They don't like protesters. They think that they're kind of loud, noisy hippies who kind of deserve a bit of a firm hand, to be honest. Now, I don't personally, I'm not kind of coming down with an indictment of his opinion personally, but I'd be keen to know how how you read things at the moment in terms of both public opinion on protest and the fallout from what's happened in the kind of anti-monarchy stuff. What does that tell us about what people think and feel? Yeah, it's really, uh, it's an interesting question. Um, and first thing really to say about, about that is it has been interesting as well as concerning seeing these arrests and, and seeing what's been happening in relation to the morning period and to the accession of the new king. I think one thing in particular I, I found interesting was, you know, a, a man was arrested in, in Oxford after shouting, uh, who elected him during the proclamation ceremony for King Charles. And what was interesting about that is that he was told he was arrested under the new policing act. And then it turned out that that wasn't actually what, uh, what he was arrested under. He was arrested under the public order act. What I find interesting about that is that it, it shows not only the kind of low understanding of the law that you, that you touched on, and I think that anybody who, who has been around protests enough will recognize that quite often the police seem to have quite a low understanding of protest law, but also that these powers were already available to them. That you know, These kind of expansions in protest powers for police were really not needed, that a lot of what they've wanted to do and a lot of what they've used in the wake of the police act coming in is they've just used the many very extensive powers that they had already. But the question on public opinion, again, I think is an interesting one. And I think that this is, in general, the idea of British people not not liking protest, I think, is somewhat ahistorical. It's perhaps sort of leaning into the, the good old sort of British stereotype of, you know, having a cup of tea, not moaning, maybe quietly tutting. And, you know, we've obviously seen a lot of talk about those stereotypes recently with the queue to the Queen's lying in state. But, you know, from the suffragettes to the, to the poll tax to the incredible actions that we saw over Kill the Bill, I think it just comes down to when it is something that you can see affects you. And when I say affects you, I don't even mean directly. I mean that, you know, there will be times where 
you will protest over something that you know the law might might not apply to you but it affects you in the sense that you want to live in a country that doesn't treat people that way with everything that's happened around the queen dying this is really quite a, a monumental period where everything has been extremely strange and emotions have been have been very high for obvious reasons but even so i think that we've we've seen that people have been shocked by police action by people being moved on for holding up blank pieces of paper you know under the idea that they could potentially write a republican sentiment on them so i i think i'm probably a bit a bit more optimistic about public opinion and the public desire to for people to be able to stand up for what they believe in than your sources. Well, that's nice to hear. I would agree. <laughs> uh, I like the vision of uh, British people drinking tea and quietly tutting. Deep resonance. I feel exposed. So, yeah, final question then, uh, as I kind of, as I've already um, spoiled, what we want to end with is how can a combination of the different tactics that we've talked about and maybe others be used to make life in the UK better for migrants in general? So, We've talked about kind of public dis- disruptions of deportation raids. We've talked about blocking charter flights. Um, we've talked about the kind of lobbying and legal stuff that's going on. And what I kind of really want to know is in the in the face of all the challenges that we've laid out here and what is definitely coming down the line for the government, how should we be resisting most strategically? Maybe, Zara, I'll come to you because I know you've had some time to think and I'm sure you've nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think there's really a plurality of efforts um, that are needed. I think, you know, there's organisations like JCWI that, you know, we're always looking for people to join our campaigns, to help us fundraise, to join us as members. And, you know, at the moment we're doing um, two kind of really major campaigns, one on kind of protections for undocumented migrants and one on protections for migrant workers. And we're doing a lot of work with the trade union movement um, on that. And so I think it's really important that also in the face of all of these kind of horrific pieces of law and legislation policy, we're not just becoming kind of firefighters where we're trying to bat away every single terrible thing they're throwing at us, but we're also making the arguments for for positive change in other areas that maybe aren't getting as much attention in the media. So yeah, really important to kind of say that. And that's something that JSWI feels very strongly about. And, you know, there are lots of other brilliant groups that you can get involved with. Migrants Organize and SOAS Detainee Support have been organizing um, a host of protests outside uh, immigration detention centers to show solidarity with people who are detained at the moment. And in particular, those who are being detained um, with the intention of the government, you know, removing them to Rwanda. And those have been really powerful protests because, you know, they've had people from inside detention centres kind of speaking through kind of a telephone to be able to share their experiences. And, you know, people have kind of really said that that show of solidarity, you know, hundreds of people showing up, chanting, saying that they don't believe that the way these people are being treated is fair, has provided hope to people who are being detained. So I think that kind of solidarity work is important too. But as I mentioned, you know, joining your local anti-raids group, also joining groups that are fighting deportations. So there's groups like Stop Deportations. There's groups like uh, Lesbians and Gays Support the Migrants, which, you know, campaign on a whole host of issues, but they do focus as well on 
kind of challenging deportations. And obviously, there are lots of ways to take action that don't just involve, you know, kind of having to chain yourself to, um, you know, someone else outside of detention centre, because we recognise that certain communities and people will be at higher risk of criminalization and police violence, depending on various forms of protest. Um, and also that that's not necessarily the most accessible option for everyone. So there are loads of ways to get involved through kind of public campaigning. Lots of groups have been running, you know, more corporate focused campaigns. So focused on targeting airlines, for example, to call on them to not cooperate with running deportation flights. And also there's a host of ways to get involved in direct action and community groups, whether that's supporting through kind of more remote, um, you know, assistance, whether that's creating content for them, helping with kind of media and comms work, um, helping with logistics, communicating between different groups. So there's really a whole host of ways for people to use their own skills and their own kind of experiences to get involved and to help a much wider movement. So I just really encourage people to, to do that. As would I. Thanks so much. Charlie, final thoughts. Take us home. <laughs> well, first of all, that's, that's a brilliant answer. And, and I would very much support everything that, that Sarah just said. I think I think really the only thing that, that I could add is that they're coming at this from so many different angles and they're doing that on purpose, not just to be really holistic, but also to make it harder to focus our resistance. So I think the other thing that I would add is is to follow groups, whether whether you, you join them or you follow them on social media, you become a member or whatever, they're able to really sort of bring together all of those things and make sure that you know kind of what's going on whether that is JCWI or Liberty or, you know, someone like the British Institute of Human Rights, who can who can show how all of these things um, are cutting together, who can explain the law as it changes. Liberty produce all sorts of know your rights guides, bust cards for protests, things of that nature. The last thing I would say is that for all of this, whether it's protests, whether it's migrants' rights, we really, really need to protect the Human Rights Act and the European Convention on Human Rights, because that's the backstop and, and that's really what uh, what they're coming for and, it, and it's what protects us. So yeah, join with us and fight that as well. Thanks so much, both. I think it's been a really kind of comprehensive overview of the different parts of, of what's going on here. And that's that's quite rare, really, for, for the podcast and, and really, I'm sure, beneficial to listeners to kind of get a sense of what are all the different fronts that we're fighting on, what's the good work that is being done. And as I said, it's felt both a combination of like comprehensive and depressing, but also really inspiring and hopeful about the good work that's being done, not least by the two of you, um, fantastic people. So thank you so much. That is sadly all we've got time for on this episode of the New Economics Podcast. Zara Hassan, first of all, thank you so much for being with us and bringing your wealth of wisdom and knowledge. If people want to find out more about your work or get involved, um, where can they go and how can they do that? Um, so definitely encourage you all to follow JCWI um, on social media and to sign up to our mailing list. And you can also follow me on Twitter. My handle's at Z-E-D-H-A-S-3. If you're interested in the kind of random musings that I have about these issues and yeah just encourage you to also kind of follow on social media and join um, the groups that I mentioned as well thank you so much and also a personal shout out for Zara's amazing article in Galdem recently about uh, stopping deportation flights which I found personally very enlightening uh, so listeners should all go and read that Charlie same question Charlie welcome thank you so much for being with us people want to find out more and get involved how can they do that 
Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. Liberty is a membership organisation. Um, you can join us from as little as £1 a month. So please do do that. Follow us on social media. You can find us at Liberty HQ. And if you'd like to follow me on social media, uh, I am C Welton on Twitter. That's C-W-H-E-L-T-O-N. And yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much both. That is it for today's New Economics podcast. We will be back soon with more. Don't you worry. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at NEF on Twitter. The New Economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.